Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Good morning, church family. It's such a pleasure to be with you. And I'm so glad you're, you're, you're learning that ability to talk back. You know, that when I spoke to you, you spoke back to me. I was so encouraged this morning to see a number of you coming back to gather that, that you feel um, safe enough to do so. Uh, and, and we recognize that these are uncertain days, aren't they? We're living in a time where the future for us in terms of the immediate future isn't clear with the pandemic and the variations of the virus and all that's ongoing. But I'm so grateful that despite circumstances that push us apart, we do find ways safely to gather, both to worship and to be encouraged in relationships. So let me just pray for our nation today, for our government, for our world. Um, Pray for their wisdom. Again, to pray for our pastor, Ronald, who is away uh, on mission business. Uh, in Sri Lanka and uh, commit those things and us to the Savior again. Father, thank you that as we speak with you, we don't need to inform you as if you're ignorant, nor do we need to petition you in a sense that you are either disinterested or that we somehow need to appeal to something before you would respond. You are the Father who has loved us extravagantly in Christ, and we remind ourselves what Paul, how he wove that together and said, how will he also not freely give you all things? Meaning, if he gave us Christ, would he withhold any other thing? So we recognize, Father, that your withholding is not because you are either displeased or unwilling. It is because you have a plan and purpose that you are working out in our day. We recognize that while the pandemic has confronted us with our weakness, it has also reminded us of your strength. While it has reduced a sense of hopefulness, we realize that our hope doesn't belong in this world. If it does, we are of all men most miserable. No, your word instructs us that our hope abides in Christ. And we look to him, but we would pray that you would give our nation our leaders across the country in provinces and in our federal government wisdom. Father, there are protests with individuals who are asserting their rights in due process, and there are others who are being affected by that. And so we are praying that you would give the police wisdom, that you would give the government wisdom, that you would give our courts wisdom, that you would give the common masses, as us of citizens, wisdom so that we would say those things that build up and don't tear down. That you would find a way to unite us as a nation when there are things that threaten to divide us at our very essential social core. And Father, we are praying that as your servants, those who know you and have been made citizens of heaven, our higher calling is to speak hope and peace and wisdom into a world as we have opportunity. So give us courage. Give us strength and boldness and give us graciousness so that what we say from our lips will not 
demean the gospel or take away from your truth, but will adorn it in appropriate ways. May our words, as Proverbs says, be like apples of gold in baskets of silver, a precious gift. Be, we pray with our pastor as he's doing business on mission for you in Sri Lanka. Uh, give him strength as he makes this all the journey and all the decisions that are being made and the people that he's meeting with and as he's proclaimed your word in a pulpit this Sunday, earlier in the day, we would just pray that you would bless him and give him rest and peace and strength and fruitfulness for all he does. For us, Lord, we pray with thankfulness that we can gather with greater freedom, that these numbers have been relaxed by the government because they see things waning. May we be wise in the use of our freedom, and may we in every way we pray be citizens of heaven that reflect we can also be under the authority of the earth, the leaders that you've given and placed over us. So give us, we pray, that kind of discernment that we need. May everything we do this day and in any day reflect well on our Savior Jesus. And we pray for his glory. We ask it for our own good in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church family, this morning as I'm going to be speaking to you from the last few verses of the Gospel of John, I'm going to be sharing with you what I would call the start of the theology of relationship in the Gospel. Meaning that the Gospel is focused, if you could receive this, primarily on the reconciliation of men to God. I'm not in any way taking away from the glory or the holiness or the dominion or power or authority of God, but what I'm trying to address is that the gospel of the kingdom is both God with us and God in us, and it is not only that his authority and rule would reign on earth as it is in heaven as we would pray as Jesus taught us, but also that we would understand that the focus of the gospel is the redemption of human beings and the means of establishing with God relationship. We're his children. And we're going to see that it is um, uh, nascent. It, it, it's just the beginnings of this truth in, in, the, in the Gospel of John chapter 1. But what I mean is what Jesus begins to teach us as he relates to his first disciples and others that he meets in this context are to encourage us and set the groundwork in the rest of the book to see that the goal of salvation is relationship with God. Couldn't happen any other way but through Jesus. But in Jesus, it is to bring us fully into a personal, deep, satisfying relationship with God. Now, to set the tone for that, I want to introduce a, a personal story uh, that, that uh, isn't true, but could be true, uh, about Donna and I. Uh, I want you to imagine that on the last anniversary we had, which was our 45th, that I show up at the front door of our home in, our, in, in my car, and I get out, and I open the trunk, and I take out a huge banner, and I put it across the garage door, and it says, Happy Anniversary with a 45th in the corner. You can see that. Because I'm really excited about an anniversary with Donna. And I want everyone around me to know that I have this relationship. And I value it, and I'm proclaiming how important it is to me. 
And then I, I put another one on, on the front of the house, and it says this, Dave loves Donna. And all of you should go, oh, after 45 years, that's pretty great, right? Lean into that with me a little bit, right? Sort of get the feeling of the moment. And it's Valentine's Day, right? Expressing our love. And then as you stand at the end of your driveway across the street and you're watching all of this go, go on, you'll see me go to the back of the trunk and I'll dig into the trunk and I'll get out a huge box. Beautifully decorated. We know something important is inside and I, I want you to know it's chocolate. And the reason it's chocolate is because uh, I was smart enough to pay attention as I was first married to Donna and I was bringing her gifts just like we did in our own family. Because you know what you do when you first get married is you behave as if everything that happened in your family is the way every other family lives. And you discover in the process of life that's not true. So I brought Donna flowers and I got, oh, thanks. And I brought her little gifts and I got, oh, thanks. And I said to her one day, like, Donna, like, how come when I give you these gifts, it's sort of not really exciting for you? And she said, Dave, I like chocolate. <laughs> you know the old adage, a happy wife is a happy life, right? In other words, you need to pay attention to things that your spouse treasures. And I learned that Donna loves chocolate. So there I am, I ring the doorbell, I'm standing in front of the house, the banner is up, families are gathering on the outside, something's going on. Donna opens the door and I give her the box of chocolates and I say, happy anniversary, I hope you enjoy the chocolates. I give them to her, I turn around and I walk away. And the neighbors say to each other, that stupid man. He's not living in that house anymore. He thinks a grand gesture is what marriage is all about. The best part of marriage is living with Donna. Do you see the point that I'm making? Is that sometimes we think that the things we do for God or the things we would read in the scripture and give to God, or, or what it is that obedience constitutes before God. And, and we have a list of things, and we look at God and say, do you like me now? Are you happy now? Is this okay now? Instead of understanding the best part of a relationship with God is Him. And He says, don't you understand that the reason... Jesus, my son, only one and begotten, went to the cross, was to redeem you. Not so that you could simply be something different in a category, but that you could be mine. That's salvation. It's not that we have just passed from death to life. It's true. It's not that we've come out of darkness into light. It is not even that we've been gifted with God the Holy Spirit. It is not that we have been given a promise of future lasting life. It is God. It's Him with us. Because you see, what I'm suggesting to you is if your view of salvation is judicial or legal, or forensic, meaning that it changes things, and it allows me to have identity because I'm now somehow related to God, and I possess, the, possess these things he's, he's done for me. If that's as deep as it goes, as far as we get, we will have a relationship with God that is stunted 
dissatisfying, dips us into moralism, legalism, trying to justify our life and get from God what we want without understanding all that he has already done for us in Christ. Now that truth, the relationship, God with us in the gospel, is what we begin to see um, announced for us at, at the last few verses of this chapter. And I say begin because it's introduced, but it's not introduced in terms of a, uh, what would we say, like Paul writing a letter and, and giving us the truth laid out in detail. But it is through narrative. It is through the example and interaction of Jesus with real people in real time. And from that, we begin to understand, oh, that's who Jesus is. And this is what Jesus wants. And it's progressive. Why? Because from these few interactions, if that was all we knew, it, it would be a very weak presentation of relational theology. Except what we see from this point on, it just continues to deepen and intensify and expand. That's what we mean progressive revelation. You get a bit here and a bit there and a bit here and a bit more there and you begin to see that the doctrine itself develops through the life of Jesus and the characters that we meet in the Gospel of John. We know who Jesus is. We begin to understand something of what he's done in the introduction. He came as light, and the light is the life of men, and everyone received him. To them, he gave the what? Authority to what? Become something different, children of God. That's all in the first part of the chapter. But now we see Jesus. The attention shifts from who Jesus is in the prologue, the introduction, to how Jesus relates to people around him. So let's lean in and follow this discourse and see some of the things that the Lord has prepared for us in this chapter. So what I'm saying is, I've used this marriage metaphor, and, and the big point I want you to carry away is the gospel of the kingdom of God is restoring relationship with us. We can't get there by ourselves. You know, we can't get there by promise. You, you can't say to the Lord, you know what, I want you to pay attention to me, so tell me what it is I need to do to get on your good side. That's called religion, and it's action of works. But what you'll discover is no matter what you yourself promise, you will be a miserable failure of complying. You won't be able to do the things even in your mind you think you can do. You'll always fall short. Why? Because of the weakness of our natures. So what we see within the gospel and what we read in this passage is the gospel of the kingdom is about what he does for us because it's something we cannot do for ourselves. So the gospel initially introduces us to a concept of God that is rather challenging. It is that the gospel introduces us to Jesus, the Lamb of God. And this is actually what we read twice in the chapter where John identifies him as the Lamb of God in verse 29 that takes away the sin of the world. So here we realize that Lamb of God is not simply a nice sort of title that Jesus wears because he has a close relationship with God. He's his little lamb. You know, he's the sacrifice. 
He's the one who is actually going to be the sin bearer. He is going to take the justice of God that we deserve into himself. And instead of our being judged by God, and listen to this, there is not a single thing once you receive Christ as Savior that you will ever pay for. Ever. I should have just not gone up with my, my tone there. There is not a single thing in your life for which you will pay when you have received Jesus Christ. He's paid it all. Past, present, future. Paid it all. Because if he hasn't paid it all, you won't survive the penalty. That's plain and simple. You, you can't. The justice of God is, is so holy and perfect and eye for eye, truth for truth, life for life, that if you and I are going to stand before God and say, now, now look, we've done everything that you've asked us to do, you know, would you weigh it out for us? You will lose. And what will you lose? You will lose your soul. You will lose your life. You will lose everything. So all of that is impregnated. All of that is, is pushed into this Lovely little title, Jesus the Lamb. The, the word intends us to understand that the Lamb, in the sacrificial sense of the term, is going to pay the price that we could not pay. You know, I had a debt I could not pay. Uh, Jesus paid it all. Uh, we sang about that this morning. Th that is the truth within this word. Without blemish, Jesus the Lamb meets all the conditions of sacrifice and fulfills the purpose of sacrifice, namely to bring an unholy people into the presence of the eternally holy God. He found a way by becoming the sin bearer. It seems utterly impossible and improbable as we read this that we're reading about a man who is going to be a human sacrifice. And it is the only place within the scripture where a human sacrifice is required and fulfilled. There was one other place, some of you might say, who know the Old Testament. Oh, but what about Abraham and his son? Right. God said to him one day, you know that story, don't you? Take your son, your only son, the son whom you love. What power in those words. And give him to me. And Abraham, by faith, did it. Why? Because he believed if he killed his son, God himself would raise that boy up. He had no doubt about the power of God because Isaac was a son who was born when he shouldn't have been born by two parents who were over 90. Now, now think about it. It just boggles the mind. I couldn't imagine my wife now in her, well, I won't tell you her age, women don't like that, but I couldn't imagine her now having a child again for us. I mean, it physically, it would wreck her. But here I'm saying, miraculously, by God, Isaac was born, and Abraham, by faith, was willing to sacrifice. And when he had the knife ready to plunge into Isaac, God showed him a ram in a thicket and said, don't do it. Now I, I know your heart. And they sacrificed together. I don't know what it would have been like to have been Isaac, as an aside. God intervened, but human sacrifice was never demanded, but it was prepared for in the purpose of Jesus. And here I'm just going to dip in again. The whole introduction of the chapter prepares us to see 
the immensity of Jesus' life. So as the Lamb of God, he really could pay for the sin of the world. Because this is where the union of Christ as God and man is essential. Because if he was just a man, one man, perfect man, holy man, good man, did everything right, how many people would Jesus be able to pay his life for? And the answer is one. He could give his life as a ransom for one other person because that's the size of his life. He's one man. But if he is God, eternal and holy, in human form, born as a man, but, but the Spirit of God is in him, then how large is his life? And the answer is limitless. That's why Jesus must be both God and man in one person because if he is not both of those things, he cannot be the Lamb. So you see, when that word is used, and you and I read it, we might just skip over it and go, oh, well, that's an interesting thing, and maybe not dip into it, but this is what it means. And then you understand this, you visit this so personally and powerfully, it took all of God in human form to redeem me. And what it means is if you were the only person on the planet, the price would have been the same. God for you. It's remarkable. So in 29, we see that. And then again in 35, the next day when Jesus is um, seen again by John uh, down by the Jordan where he's baptizing, he says, look, the Lamb of God. And when he says that in verse 37, something unusual happens. Two disciples hear this, and they immediately leave the company of John, whom they've been following, and they start to follow Jesus. You see, the heart of the gospel of the kingdom is a relationship with Jesus, the Lamb of God. It's on those terms. So in the narrative, as he's walking away, these two men start to follow him. Now, have you ever had this experience in your life where you're walking down a street and you have a feeling someone is behind you, watching you? Have you ever had that? Or been in a park somewhere doing something and you go, somebody's watching me, you turn around and there they are, they're watching you kind of almost creepy, right? You know, it's sort of like, I wasn't prepared for that. But you have this sort of sense something's going on behind you. Well, Jesus has this sense two people are following him, and he turns around and he sees them both, and he knows they're following him, obviously because they're in a place where you don't get unless you're pursuing the person ahead of you. I mean, it just all makes sense in the context. And he looks at them and he asks them a very interesting question. We would say, what do you want? Or maybe more politely, can I help you? Meaning, what are you doing? You know how English is impregnated with all kinds of inflection, and we say words, but we mean something different, like look out, and what we really mean is pull in. Right? You said that to people. Look out! You don't mean stick your head out. You mean get out of the way. Well, when you say to them, can I help you, or what do you want, you're implying that you know they're following you, and they would only be doing it with some kind of a purpose. Now, of all the things that you could say to Jesus, the Lamb of God who's just been identified by your master, John, what would occur to you to ask? Because it's amazing what they ask. And that really pulls us right into relational theology because they look at Jesus and they say, um, where are you staying? What? Like we would say... What business is that of yours where I live? Except they had purpose behind it that Jesus understood. 
They knew who Jesus was, so they weren't going to ask about his identity. They knew that John had said, this is the one, this is the Messiah, this is the Lamb of God. They understood all those terms. But they look at him, and what they're really saying is, you got room for us? Are you the Lamb of God who's really drawing near that we can get close to? Are you a person that not only could we follow, but wants us to follow? They're trying to figure out how to relate to this person. And Jesus could have done any number of things at this point. And what he says to them is, well, come on, I'll show you. Uh, Come and see. Uh, Come check it out for yourself. And they do. So what's remarkable in what we see in this is that here is God in human form with a purpose that's identified and clear that Jesus understands and these two men now understand. And Jesus is walking away and they're following him. And, and it's all about relationship. That's the focus. That's what John is introducing us. When you think about it, it's kind of a scandal in a sense. Jesus, the un you know, the uncreated who did all the creating, because we read that in the first chapter, everything that is he made, drops into human form in a place called Israel, and he's down at the Jordan in the wilds of, the, uh, of this baptizing thing that John is doing where he's getting people ready for the Messiah to come, and then he identifies Jesus as that Messiah, and there's this whole sort of interesting dialogue where John says, I really didn't understand it because he's his cousin, he just didn't see him in those terms. He's another guy just like him and, and, and a little less focused, uh, not really into his ministry yet. And John is busy doing things that are changing the whole of Israel. And Jesus comes along and the Spirit says, that's the guy. And he goes, oh, okay. By faith, here's the Messiah. And the two guys are following him. And they wonder where he lives. And he says, come and see What blows my mind is here is the Son of God starting his ministry, willing to hang out with two guys we will later know are fishermen. Uh, Less academic, less taught, less familiar with synagogue and rule and regulation and Old Testament, just two ordinary guys. Now, working guys, blue-collar men, Uh, getting by making a living in their dad's business. Well, one of them is. We're not sure who the second one is, but that's Andrew. He's related to his dad's business. They're fishermen. And and in the story, as we go through the narrative, what we discover is that Jesus has room for the ordinary person just like you and me. I was born to a family where my dad was a welder and my mom was a nurse. Working-class family. Uh, fared well, did well for us. I had no aspiration in my life of doing anything other than being a little guy in a little place doing a little thing. Our dreams weren't big. They were just normal. Now, God has moved me from where I was to where I've had influence and opportunity to serve him. Dared I believe that that was going to be true in my life as a kid growing up in Campbell River? Not a chance. Some of you have familiar stories. What am I saying? That Jesus stops 
what it is he is doing to make room for two ordinary people to have relationship with him. That's the gospel. So if you are here today saying in your head, or if you're watching and viewing online, that God doesn't have room for a person like me, you really need to read the gospel. Because he came exactly for people just like you. Who need a lamb to deal with their fault and lead them to God's forever family. This is the gospel. So come and see is an open invitation. Come along and the gospel of the kingdom invites us to come and see, to start a relationship. And it's not these guys' idea that they can push in. It's Jesus' idea to invite them. And he uses this phrase elsewhere within the gospel. Come and see. Follow me. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. He says to us that if you want this, come and join. There's room for you. And what we do learn is that they're staying with them. They stay with them the rest of the day because the text actually says, and they're very polite about this, turning around, Jesus saw them following. That's in verse 37 and verse 38, pardon me. And then they say, Rabbi, which is very polite, teacher, where are you staying? And he says, come and you'll see. And so they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. Now, you need to know if they were followers of John. John the Baptist was this wild woolly, I call him woolly because he was wearing rougher cloth out of camel's hair and he was eating locust and wild honey and probably sleeping wherever so they were used to roughing it right and so when they asked where are you staying they weren't looking to upclass their conditions and have better accommodation they really wondered who, i don't know anything about you who are your people where do you stay at how do i know who you are with people who are around you and they invited him now i don't know what happened but the 10th hour is about four o'clock and whatever happened between them in conversation, and I sure hope in heaven that we have a set of DVDs and we can go into the library and pick that out and go, I want to hear that conversation. Because what happens at the end is that their lives are radically different after spending time with Jesus. You see, what happens is the gospel changes us so deeply that we want others to have a relationship with Jesus too. Because once you have understood who Jesus is and what it is that he's done for you, and you've moved not only from darkness to life and, and from death to life, but you also have this relationship that is changing your identity. God is both gifting you and promising you a future you could never have any other way that you go, this is too good to keep to me alone. Jesus, you made room for me. And so what is it that happens in the text? Well, let's read it for ourselves. So they went and saw where he was staying, and he spent the day with them. It was about the 10th hour, 4 o'clock. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who followed Jesus. So that's a recap, verse 41. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. He's here. It's shocking news. And then there's this little bracket that says that is the Christ. Just let me give a little teaching as an aside. Many people think that Jesus Christ is a two-name, uh, you know, it's got two parts to it. Jesus and the last name is Christ. His first name is Yeshua and the, the last name is Christos in Greek. Or Messiah, Messiah. Not at all. 
It's Yeshua, Savior, Jesus, but Messiah is his title. It's the anointed one. And in Greek, anointed one comes from a different sounding word, and so it's Christ in Greek, Christos, and it's Messiah in Hebrew. Same title, two different languages. You know, in French and English, with Quebec nearby, and some of you may have experience in Quebec, there's a lot of English words that have been pulled into the language. You know, le weekend, le char, meaning the car. But when it comes to window, it's la fenêtre, still in French. And we have to go, well, what is that in English? Because we might not be familiar with it, window. Same thing in Hebrew and Greek. There is movement in the languages, but there are some terms that are very distinct. This is one of them. So when you read Jesus Messiah or Jesus Christ, you're reading Jesus, the anointed one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what it means. He's known by his title. Back into the text. The heart of evangelism is wanting for people that you love the same relationship with God that you have. Relationship is the key of evangelism because if you don't want for people something that is remarkable, you are going to do evangelism out of duty or someone is compelling you. But when you do it because of who Jesus is in your life, you will conquer fears of the unknown because you are giving people an opportunity to meet the one who transforms, changes your future, changes you from the inside out, gives you hope and a future and peace. And Andrew beats a path home and says, Peter, Simon, not Peter yet, Simon, you need to come. And so what happens? Well, it seems that this man, Simon, is pretty impressed with what his brother says. And he comes. So he brings him to Jesus, verse 47. Jesus looked at him and said, Huh, you are Simon Barjona, or Barjonas. But you're going to be called Cephas. And a little bit of digging, if you don't know, uh, is a word that means the rock. Now, I guess I should have put a picture of the rock wrestler up there. That would have been, as some of you young guys are going, yeah, that would have been great. Because Jesus isn't talking about his external power. He's talking about a transformation that's going to occur in the life of Peter. Now, Cephas, Peter, right? Petros in Greek and Cephas in Hebrew. Same term, same word. So Simon's name has been changed to Petros, Peter. Anybody that knows Peter would start to laugh. This is ridiculous. This guy, I know him. He's a loudmouth. He's impulsive. He, he's always running off and correcting people around him. You know, he, he, he's a bit of a bull, meaning he just doesn't understand his limits and boundaries, and we certainly see that in spades throughout the entire gospel. But here's what I want you to know about the identity that Jesus gives you at conversion. He transforms you from where you were to where you are. And he gives you a future that you won't fully understand, but you will grow into by grace and maturity. I don't mean by that that you earn it. I do mean that you live it out. So what does Peter become in the book of Acts? 
He is the apostle that checks out every time the gospel moves from one people group to another. Out of Jerusalem into another area where people of mixed background, where Samaritans, where uh, Gentiles, where up in uh, Greeks and others up in... Peter was the one who was sent. Why? Because he was the one who was the foundation of the church and approved its growth and development. He came to be the rock. And that remarkable, when people said, who do people say that I am? He said, you are God. You are the son of God. This is why you've come. And he says, on this confession, on this truth, the church will be built. That's what Jesus says. He calls him in chapter 1, but it's not until years later that he really begins to grow and mature into his identity. So here's what I'm saying to you. When you receive Christ, you do not fully understand where God is taking you. But let me tell you, it's very good. And it will be to be developed into a person of agency, a person of influence, a person who will connect with those around them, both within the church and outside it, to advance his kingdom. Lean into that. Because you never do it on your own. He doesn't send you off and say, no, go figure it out, and when you've got it, come on back and we'll have a chat. He develops it in you over time. So you're transformed, your identity has changed, who you are before God. So the relationship with Jesus, the Lamb of God, changes your identity. The gospel of the kingdom is transformational through the Lamb of God. It, It changes you from the inside out. It changes your identity. It changes your direction. It changes your future. It brings that into focus in a way that you could never produce by yourself. The gospel of the kingdom does this for all of us. Then I want to say to you, your new identity begins when you receive and follow. That's relationship. You have an identity, as I've been sort of teaching you here, and now I'm catching up with some of these phrases that are, on, that are going to be on the overhead online for you, that you have an identity that can never be understood, received, or developed until you receive Jesus the Lamb. And then you begin to discover in time his plan, his purpose, his direction in your life. And so next we see, after this event, that Jesus decides there's the next place to go. And so where does he go? He goes to the place where Andrew and Peter fish. He goes to the Galilee region. And they walk, and on their walk they meet Philip. And in this case, it was not Philip who was looking for Jesus, but the reverse, it was Jesus who saw Philip and said to Philip, come and follow me, third fisherman. Andrew, Peter, now Philip. Three fishermen. At the outset, you and I might say, you should sort of aim a little higher, Jesus. You know, bring a few intellectuals into the pack. You know, why don't you bring some people who have some moxie and understanding of, of social norms at least. These are, you know, these are, these are fisher guys. Rough and ready. You know, a little wild and not well educated maybe. Galilee had a very poor social Uh, standing in Israel in these days. Uh, It was not looked on highly. It was disrespected. Uh, A little bit like we might talk about people who come from such and such a place. And what we mean is, you know, not much advantages. But he calls these three 
And the detail given is that Philip is from a place called Bethsaida, or Bethesda as we would say, and also a place that Peter and Andrew were from. And Philip then right away goes and, and he knows someone that should meet Jesus too. So he goes to this friend of his, uh, Nathaniel, and he says, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah, but he adds a little bit more detail. He actually fulfills all of the Old Testament. He's from the line of David, and he's actually born from a guy by the name of Joseph who came out of Nazareth. And right then, Nathaniel says, are you kidding me? Nothing good has ever come out of Nazareth. I mean, you think that Galilee is low. Nazareth is a whole new, you know, it's in the basement. Nothing good. Nobody of note came out of Nazareth. What are you talking about? And Nazareth was a place that was, was close to a large city that was being built in the Galilee district by Rome. And so it's where carpenters, right? Joseph. Uh, where stonemasons, where people who were employed by the Romans to build would, would live. Again, working class. But maybe collaborators. Uh, maybe benefiting from Rome's occupation. Not the kind of person you want to add. So Nathaniel is really outspoken. He says, what are, you, what are you talking about? And he says to him, same thing, you should come and see. So Nathaniel comes to see for himself. Jesus looks at Nathaniel before they even have a conversation and said, wow, you've brought me an Israelite in, who's a person of incredible integrity. Now, there's two ways of looking at this. Not only was Nathaniel a truth teller, he was the kind of guy that went around, I imagine, correcting everybody else. You know, one of those guys that knows too much and, and likes to tell you all that he knows? He's a man who just can't tolerate anything that's only half known. And when Jesus says that to him, he, he's amazed because they haven't met. He said, how do you know me? And he said, actually, Nathaniel, before your brother even went to get you, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. And right away, Nathaniel is so impressed with this. He says, you really are the Messiah. You really are the king of Israel. Only God would know this kind of stuff. And Jesus on the spot corrects him why. I want to suggest to you the reason he corrects him is because Nathaniel is settling for things that simply impress his mind and not for things that change his heart. He looks at him and says, well, I mean, you have to be him. And Jesus says to him, if you think this is impressive, if you follow me, I want you to know you will see the angels of heaven coming down onto the Son of Man and returning to heaven. You are going to see a two-way activity of the kingdom of heaven on earth through the Son of Man, through me. Son of Man here is a title Jesus frequently used. It's found in Daniel chapter 7, and it looks like Jesus is saying, I'm just a guy. No, he's saying, I am the guy that brings heaven to earth. That's what Son of Man means and reflects the means of the Lamb. So as we wrap it up in this chapter, we meet Jesus on mission, the Lamb of God who meets ordinary people, transforms their life, gives them a new identity, and as soon as they experience it, they need to share it. So friends, who do you know 
that needs a relationship with the Lamb? Who do you know whose life would be exponentially improved if they gave up the authority over their own life and came under the authority of Jesus the Lamb? For whom are you praying and for whom is God preparing you as he did Andrew and Philip to begin sharing the news that is undeniably important? And take a step. Pray for courage and boldness. Because they didn't say much. They just said, come and see. Check it out for yourself. Come join me. Come to Seekers. Hear about Jesus. If you're interested, I can give you more. And friends, have you started on a relationship with Jesus but settled for less? Are you wanting for God to impress you and maybe just kind of look after you and answer a few of your prayers for success and promotion and safety? Or do you want Jesus to come into your life, deeply transform you, and move you into a relationship that does not bring gifts to the door like I did on this pretend anniversary with Donna, but actually moves in and lives with God as our Father, and we as his children. Let's take the step that the Spirit is impressing us with, and serve the Lamb of God, Jesus. Father, thank you for an opportunity of digging into this passage. Thank you for loving us the way you have so extravagantly, and letting us see in the actions and life of Jesus that you are willing to transform us by being the one who pays our penalty and adopts us into your forever family. Thank you for what we've learned. Hide it in our heart, we pray. Uh, deeply engage us with this truth that the gospel is relationship. We pray it for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.